<laughs> yes, sir. Faithful, right? Hi, what's your name? Melanie. Melanie, nice to meet you. Is this your first time? Here? Well, this is a weekly uh, gathering. It's been going on for seven years now. It's a long time. So, welcome. Um, are you familiar with Japa, chanting on beats? No? Okay. <clears throat> this is a very simple form of meditation. It's very um, powerful also. And um, in the bhakti culture, of which the Bhagavad Gita is a principal text, this uh, chanting on beats is um, part of a daily routine, spiritual practice. So sometimes we start our classes by chanting on beats for a few minutes. Uh, if you'd like to join us, you're welcome to. Um, it's done by taking the bead that is just to the right of this kind of very ostentatious little orange bead there. And uh, with the first and third finger, gently turning the bead between the first and third finger of the right hand, which is, it's, it's a way of keeping track of how many times the mantra is chanted. It's also a way of keeping the sense of touch engaged while you do the meditation. And the mantra that's used in Japa, the Maha Mantra is Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare. Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. I don't know if you're familiar with that mantra, but um, that's chanted on each beat, then you move to the next beat, and you chant the mantra into the next beat. It's a way of kind of easing into our discussions. We start with some japa. So shall we do that for a few minutes? Yeah. All right, you're welcome to take this at your own pace. It's, japa is a murmuring of the mantra, just loud enough so that you can hear it yourself. Um, for me, it sounds like this. This is the volume and the speed that I go at usually. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. Then move to the next beat. Some people have told me that I go too fast for them. And um, so sometimes what we've done is chant together. Actually, we could do that this time. You want to try that together? Let's try chanting the mantra together as a way of kind of, for me to slow down <laughs> and for all of us to be in sync. So let's chant together, right? We'll try it for just a few minutes. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare. Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare. Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare. Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare. Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare. Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare. Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. 
take formal initiation into bhakti practice, there's a prescribed number of rounds of japa one is expected to chant each day. That number is 16. Works out to be about an hour and 15 minutes to an hour and a half of chanting every day. 
do all initiated devotees chant for an hour and a half every day? Stay tuned. But it's uh, habit forming. I can I warn you. If you start down this path, you will not be able to give it up. It's a very soothing and very reassuring, and it's a nice way to start your day. Good for you, too. Um, I haven't been here in a while, so it's great to see you again after the last few weeks. Dear Sister Sharon is here. Before I introduce our very special guest this evening, I would just like us to go around the room once and maybe just say your name. And um, what, what brought you here? What was the impulse that <laughs> made you want to be a part of this Bhagavad Gita discussion? So let's start over here on the left. Julie also has some very insightful questions. Very good. Oh yes, a real provocateur. <laughs> Tuesday evening with us. If you end up coming here uh, often enough, you'll see that we tend to 
veer into certain kind of predictable subjects. One is relationships. They just <laughs> always come up. And the other is physics. For some reason, we have a lot of discussion about yeah. right, Well, maybe we'll, we'll see if physics comes up today or not. Hi, my name is Julie. Um, I come to this class whenever I can. And um, since seven years, I think I was in the first, this used to be Sunday morning pizza, sunrise pizza. Yeah, right. right, right. Yeah. And when I'm not here, I listen to the podcast. <laughs> um, and that's really nice. I can listen. One podcast will last you for a really long time. I think I've listened, the most times I've listened to one podcast is like four times. Whoa. That is gracious. Yeah, four times. And I think they're so good I'd like to transcribe them. <laughs> so that's what brings me here is just because I love to hear from someone who really knows what they're talking about. Julie's very kind. What, I think what she's really referring to is the fact that somehow we collectively have managed to create a comfortable space, a place where people can uh, speak their minds and speak candidly. And if you can do that, if you can reach a place where the formalities can be set aside, you can really kind of speak from your heart, some pretty magical things happen. So I'm with you there, you know. This is a real learning experience, so it's just great to be able to do this on a regular basis. I'm here uh, because I'm trying my best not to miss opportunities in my life. Um, we are so honored to have such a brilliant, not only a brilliant scholar of the Gita, but a sincere devotee of God to help us together uncover our own potential as, as devotees and using this sacred book. Uh, I, I don't know why this place isn't just packed with people, but um, it probably is, but I just can't see them. <laughs> they're, in, um, they're etheric bodies, and they're lila bodies, and, uh, but I am very grateful to be here and to be in your presence. Uh, and I come every time I'm in New York, I, this is one of the, my uh, Tuesday evening is my Destination to be there. Thank you. Thank you, Sharon. Hi, Josh. 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 Hi, Divya Alter is our guest this evening. I don't know if I'm doing something wrong. Divya is a, an old friend, a dear friend. And um, I was so delighted when I was able to capture the one evening that she had, like you. You know, it's not 
often that she gets out. She has many students of her own. And um, I, wanted, uh, I wanted to have a discussion with Divya uh, for a number of reasons. First of all, because the Bhagavad Gita itself is a discussion. It's not a one-way, it's not a monologue. It's not a teaching going out there into the world. Right? It is a mutual exploration between two people who um, are committed to each other. It's, it's a committed relationship <laughs> between Krishna and Arjuna. And because there's love there, and it's surprising how many times throughout the Gita Krishna makes this point that we're talking because I, I love you and I know you love me. I mean, it's surprising how often that's, that gets said. When that's there, then there can be an effective communication. We were just talking about this, weren't we? We were talking about how um, artists will very often want to have someone whom they love in the audience so that at least there's that one person who gets them <laughs> and to whom that artist can perform and then just give everything. And if anyone else takes something away from it, well and good. Um, I thought that would be a great thing for us to do because I love Divya dearly. I mean, I, admire her and uh, this is an example of someone who has really just given herself to the well-being of others and um, another reason I wanted to have Divya in particular here is that uh, she's very articulate about her own journey through bhakti and uh, we need that we, we need to hear from people who go down this path what are the challenges that they confront? What's, what are the, the relevant issues that they have to address in order to progress spiritually, progress developmentally, you know, as human beings, as devotees, but as human beings? Right? So she's very articulate about that. And also I think it's important that we have more than just a male voice talking here every week. Um, it's... It's okay, but, you know, I think the balance is even better. So, so would you please join me in thanking Divya for joining us here this evening? Thank, Thank you. you so much. Um, we're going to open this up very quickly to any questions or comments that you all would like to make. But just to um, introduce yourself to us, maybe you would take a moment to um, describe who you are and how you got here and your journey to bhakti. Well, we're in a committed relationship. <laughs> <laughs> You're my teacher, I'm your student. <laughs> so, um, thank you for having me. Um, when I was 17, I'm from Bulgaria. Bulgaria is a very small country right above Greece and Turkey in Europe. When I was 17, I, the way I, teenage rebellion, you know, the way I wanted to be different from the rest of the world was that I decided to be a yogi. It was very different in Bulgaria. <laughs> it was still a communist country at, at the time, and there was no yoga studios like we have in New York. There was one known yoga teacher in the entire country. And he, he's written several books in Bulgarian, and 
I got all his books and I started reading and studying. He wasn't living in my town. So I was like, I want to learn. <laughs> so I started reading his books and tried to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning and take a cold shower. <laughs> I lasted two days. I, I tried to do the asanas, postures, but it, I realized it's really impossible to learn how to do it correctly just by reading the book. You need a teacher in person. So I also read that yogis in general are vegetarians. So that was my first step. I decided to become a vegetarian and told my mom from tomorrow on, no meat, fish, and eggs. <laughs> so she was really shocked. And, and I was really searching. I, I really wanted to learn how to be a yogi. I, I canceled my, I didn't go to the prom. I was just finishing high school. I didn't go to that. <laughs> um, I thought it was very mundane. Um, and it's not, I was just searching. And you know when you're in crossroads in your life and you feel like you cannot continue to live like that anymore. You need a change in your life. And you're looking for answers and you don't know what, where to go. <coughs> So, sometimes just randomly you open a book or a newspaper or turn on the radio or whatever, walk down the street. So I was walking down the street and I met a person who was running an underground yoga ashram, <laughs> Bhakti ashram in my town. And it was really a one bedroom apartment and it was underground because in communist time, everything spiritual was forbidden. We were forbidden to go to church. In fact, for Easter, I remember we just had Easter <laughs> two days ago. For Easter, the teachers would guard, the, there would be like spies around the church, and if they saw students coming, they would punish them in front of the whole school. It was that bad. <laughs> so, so nothing spiritual was forbidden. It was still underground. And I loved the class. It was a bhakti ashram. I loved the class. We had kirtan, a little bit of Gita discussion. And at the end, they served this incredible feast of Indian food, all vegetarian, and it totally blew my mind away. <laughs> I've never experienced food like that. And I just immediately felt at the right place. It was like, that's, that's what I've been, they're yogis, they're vegetarian, I'm in. <laughs> so I started just going there regularly and studying and taking the classes and also volunteering in the kitchen, chopping vegetables. And that's how I started to learn how to cook. And, and then I was, um, well, you asked me how, how I felt, you know, God's presence or in my life. And honestly, I really grew up as an atheist. atheist. It, it, that was the culture. We were actually taught in school that God is, is a, doesn't exist. And, religion is opium for the people <laughs> and, and and I wasn't I really I was com a complete atheist but I was just graduating from high school and my mom and my parents wanted me to go to the university and study there and I remember it was a I had to the, the university I wanted to get in 
was on the Black Sea, on the coast of the Black Sea. The name is Varna, like Varna Shama. <laughs> and I had to go there, and I went a few weeks before, and I had to prepare. I had to study very boring geography and German language. I was fluent in German. And so on the, I didn't study everything. On the day of the exam, I remember getting up in the morning, chanting 16 rounds. <laughs> and praying, and I, my, I clearly remember my prayer was like this, Krishna or God, I don't know if, if you exist or not, but if it's your will for me to continue to study, please let me pass this exam because I didn't study everything. And if they give me a subject that I didn't study, I couldn't, I couldn't write a word about it. And, and just two weeks, uh, no, actually a week afterwards, after my exam, in the same town, for the first time was coming uh, a Swami, Suhotra Swami, and with a bunch of devotees, and they were going to do public programs and um, concerts in the town. So I said, if it's your will to do this education, let me pass the exam. If not, I'll just stay and wait for the devotees to come a week later. And I got a subject that I've never studied before. It was like a direct answer to my prayer. And I just handed it an empty paper. I just, I mean, blank paper. I could not write anything. And I, of course, failed the exam. And I just stayed and waited for the devotees. And I really became, I was like, yes, God must exist. <laughs> and ever since, I've been chanting and trying to serve. And How many years ago was that? Um, that was in 1990. That's when the communism broke in Bulgaria. So everything began to open up and we so could go to church. So it's been more than 20 years. Yeah. So in that time, I know you, you spent several years in India. Yeah, I, I, I studied there for five years. And you studied Ayurvedic uh, cooking in India? No, I, I really, I was called to India to do service as a secretary to the governing body commission of the Hare Krishna movement. <laughs> but um, at the same time, I studied at the Vrindavan Institute for Higher Education. So, you know, the Gita, the, the Bhagavatam, mm -hmm. teachers training courses, things. Everything I could study, I tried to study. So you, you had that time in India studying bhakti in its natural environment. And then at some point you came uh, to the States. Yes, and um, you settled in New York. What uh, what prompted that? How did you get to New York? Oh, I, I was I was called to the states for, to do work, uh, and then I met my husband and we got married. <laughs> so uh, we were in D.C. initially, and then we we came to New York. We we were called to participate in the Bhakti Center and contribute okay. with educational programs. So we decided to settle here. And you've been holding your cooking classes for some time now, right? Yeah. And that's doing rather well, I think, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I, I teach Ayurvedic cooking classes, vegetarian, of course. You have, uh, there should be a card there. Yes. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, people come. We have fun. In fact, I have, we have a class going on right now, but I trained other teachers how to teach so that I could 
take a break. <laughs> That's the way they do it. <laughs> All right, so now we have a kind of a general sense of the biography of Divya Alter. Now let's go a little deeper. Um, This is a very, very extraordinary group of people here. Even the new ones, whom I don't know, they strike me as just as extraordinary as all the others. But coming into the discussions that we have here, the interest has always been what I guess we might call you know, the, 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 the nitty-gritty of spiritual life. Um, theory is nice, philosophy is nice, but what do you do? All right, now I'm here, I get it, I want a yoga lifestyle, I want Krishna in my life, I'd like to know more about devotion. And along the way, something inevitably comes up, you know, like this big boulder in the middle of the road, And for everyone, it has its own particular shape and form. So I'm wondering, what has been the big obstacle for you? What is the thing that you have found most challenging in adopting to? I mean, this was not the culture you were born into. This is something that you voluntarily chose to pursue. And I'm wondering what what shape that journey has taken for you. Well, on different levels, different challenges. Like, on the physical level, my health has always been a challenge. So, that's, like, I had, I was very sick as a very little child. So, it just kind of messed up my whole system for life. So, I've always been, and I, for, for years, I actually neglected my body. Especially because I... I started the spiritual practice so young, I was, I was still a teenager. <laughs> and part of the teachings was, was that we're not the body. And I kind of really focused on that, forgetting the other part that I'm eternal soul, <laughs> I'm not the body. That's like the negative, and then I'm eternal soul is the positive. So by by um, focusing on realizing I really I'm still on the path of realizing that I'm different from my body not fully identifying with my body so I tend for years I actually neglected my physical needs (laughs) so I didn't care even as a vegetarian of course I always cared to eat prasad but I didn't care if it was right for my body or I I worked really, really hard. Like I would, I would serve and serve and serve and then collapse. So uh, it kept building up, and at some point, I ended up in a hospital when I was in India because, and the doctor told me, if you continue like that, your body can't take it. (laughs) You have a desire to do all these things, but your body can't take it. So you have to take care of it. So. For the first time, because I was so sick and really weak and couldn't move much, so uh, it's like all of a sudden everything was taken away from me. All my abilities, everything I was proud of, um, everything I borrowed strength from was taken away and I was just in bed. And it took me all day to chant my japa. 
So that was a big turning point for me because for the first time I realized, first of all, I hated my body. So there was this negativity about the material and, and the material body and myself and all that. So in, at that point, I really began to learn how to, first of all, love myself as a spirit soul, eternal soul, part of God, you know, like that. And then also uh, how to receive lo love and compassion from others because I had some really close friends who started taking care of me. And I realized that I was so close to I was so close to receiving <coughs> from others. I was giving, 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 but I wasn't able to receive. And every time it was coming to me, I was like, no, 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 I don't deserve it, or no, something like that. So, and my health is still, it's always, my, my body is always my guru, even though, and it actually, the more I learn about how to properly take care of my physical needs, the more detached I become from my body. So it's very interesting. To, to see, so that's definitely one, one big obstacle. Now you're getting an idea of why I wanted Divya here. <laughs> um, you've just touched on something I suspect every one of us here in one way or another can relate to, this existential dilemma of being spiritual beings housed in these material bodies. And how do you resolve that? Do you emphasize this? Do you emphasize that? What's the proper balance? Now, at some point, I'm guessing that that might have been your impetus for exploring cooking and what you do you now as a yeah. teacher. Yeah. You know how some, some, very often our biggest struggle becomes our journey. It's like our journey home, so to say. It's what we're meant to give to the world. And it's usually our biggest struggle as well. So, mm. definitely. Ah. How about that one? <laughs> the biggest, our biggest struggle ends up often being our contribution to the world. Is that mm -hmm. how you said that? So rather than running away from it, listen to what it's trying to tell you. What is, what is the response on the part of the people who come to you for classes? I mean, if it's anything like... <clears throat> what I'm observing personally in yoga <clears throat> studio environments, the conscious mind says one thing, the subconscious mind is, something, is saying something quite different. The conscious mind is saying, I'm coming here because this will be, you know, I'll have a good stretch, I'll, you know, let's make me feel good. The subconscious mind is saying, I really crave quality of life. I'm really looking for something more in my life. And I think there's something here, I don't know what it is but I want to come for that. Is there an equivalent in, in, among your students when they come for your cooking classes? Well, a lot of them usually say it's more than a cooking class. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, what prompts them to say that? What, what is it about your classes that ends up being more than just the obvious? I don't know. It's... Um, like people often tell me they feel inspired to take care of themselves and to, to really pay attention to themselves, not in a selfish way, but to really like uh, 
okay, where am I, where am I at right now? <laughs> what are my needs? You know, how am I connecting with others? So, what's my relationship with food? Mm. I always talk about cooking as a relationship. Relationship with ingredients, relationship with people, relationship with the source of all ingredients, <laughs> like that. So the more you do it, the more you deepen your relationship. And it's always personal every time you do it. So that's why, that's why I encourage people to not see cooking just as a chore, but it's, it's a relationship, it's mm. a loving exchange. So. Yeah. That's beautiful. I mean, cooking as a part of your full spiritual life, just as sacred as chanting japa or any other part of your spiritual practice. Pretty wonderful. So I'm going to open this up. You know, it doesn't have to be just me talking with you. Anything that comes to mind or questions you might have, secret ingredients for special recipes, or whatever it is you'd like to know, please. It's an opportunity to talk with someone who's really steeped in bhakti culture and cuisine. When you uh... When you're using Indian spices, like cumin, coriander, curry, these kinds of things, is it better to uh, cook the spices first before you add to the rest of the vegetables, whether it be dal or any other type of vegetables? Mm. Is it, and it's better to cook them first? Yeah, you know, most spices require heat to break down and be absorbed by the right. body. So you would either dry toast them, or you would saute them in oil, or just blow them with the vegetables, add them to the water, like for a dal or something. So there are different ways of doing it. A few exceptions of pepper, like black pepper. You, don't ha you always add the black pepper at the end, at the end. yeah, after yeah. you turn it off. But most spices require heat to break down. And is it better to cook them in oil rather than just put them in the pot with the water and the, the vegetables or the dough? I don't think it's better or worse. That's one thing I learned from Yamuna Devi. Yogeshwara facilitated Yamuna's cookbook and I spent 10 days learning cooking from her once. And that's one thing she taught me. She, what? Yamuna Devi, you know the big Indian vegetarian no, cookbook? Yes, I do know. What was it? So she, I asked her this question, and she told me that depending on when you add the spice, the same spice, at the beginning, middle, or end, whether you're, it's dry or sautéed or it's dry toasted or you just cook it with the water, it will have slightly subtle flavors. So she said it just depends on your preference or what you want to achieve with this dish. But all, all methods are correct. It just... Here's something fascinating coming out of that <laughs> good question. Would it be accurate to say, I'm phrasing this as a question so it doesn't sound like I'm preaching, would it be accurate <laughs> to say that um, those subtleties of flavor are really the essence of bhakti? I mean, bhakti is all about the subtleties of flavor, the subtleties of loving relationships. Yeah. So is there a, is that, would that be legitimate to draw that kind of a parallel between the, the approach to cooking in a bhakti 
frame of mind. And yeah, just like cooking has different rasas, different tastes, different foods. So bhakti has different tastes and different. And actually, the deeper we go into bhakti, the more we pay attention to the subtleties, because the externals have limitations. It's it's like that's how much we can do externally, or how 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 deep we can go externally, but. The deeper we can really deepen our practice, any spiritual practice really, when we go deeper and deeper into subtleties, that's in the details, the subtleties. That's unlimited. That you can never. There is no limit to how deep you can go. Subtly. I'm holding back because I really do want you to be the ones to kind of guide this discussion. Alex. Thank you, first of all, for sharing your teaching. Um, I think I'm very boring so far. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Thank you. It was a question about, you've spoken about relationships, Luckily, he was. Yeah, he was a monk actually for ten, ten years. He was a monk who didn't want to get married. <laughs> no, but then he met me, and something clicked in him. Um, <laughs> yeah, so now. Would you like to rephrase your question? <laughs> no, I just I would like to hear more about that. What exactly? About the relationship part. I mean, you getting married and having that, you know, as part of your devotional practice, you also had a commitment to your to your spouse and how perhaps the two balancing the two was a possibility mm-hmm. for yeah. Yeah, thank you. You were hoping somebody would ask me this question. I thought it might come up. Um, <laughs> what you need to know is that many people here are in relationships with partners who don't necessarily share their devotional path. Yeah, yeah. So it's a question I think many people would be interested in hearing your answer to. Well, I, f- I feel really lucky in that regard. And I also felt it would be very difficult for me to have a partner who doesn't follow the same path, at least for me. I'm a very rigid person, so (laughs) so if he's not following... (laughs) um, (laughs) Bad relationship. Well, that'll be my evolution, I guess. But, um, see, it's, it's really helpful for me because First of all, I got married much later. I mean, in, in Vedic culture, you should be married by the age of 25. And I was like 34. And I really waited because I wasn't, first of all, I wasn't ready. And then I wanted to meet the right person. So, um, and I'm really grateful I waited because I feel that my husband is definitely the right person. And we, um, 
we know each other's buttons. <laughs> there are a few buttons that we all have, and it, it, they always pushed in a cl very close relationship, in an intimate relationship. So um, very early in our engagement, we actually figured out those buttons. We, at the time, we were also going to the Barbara Brennan School of Healing. I don't know if you're familiar with the school. It's like very big energy school in America. So it helped us get to know each other and get to know our stuff, so to say. And um, what, what really works for us is both of us are committed to the path of bhakti, but also to education. So we, we also had the same vision of what would be the center of our relationship. And I really f feel it's very important to have a center of your relationship. Like, like something that unites you, something, not just physically, but something that, that you're following the same path, you have the same goal, um, you're, um, you're centered around something, and it motivates you, and actually that's what helps you, at least in our relationship, this is what keeps us together, even though we have disagreements, or we go through our downtimes, like that, so having that center point and always aligning with it is really what what helps in our relationship. With this. I don't know if that's that's really What is the best way to offer the food? The best way. This open your heart and pour your love over it. It's really, it's the attitude of offering. I mean, you're asking me like physically to offer yeah, it? Or, yeah. Well, you can always have... Like a, as you're cooking or after oh, at or the before end. you eat it? Or do you, should there be a picture there or an actual deity? Um, do you take a spoon and feed the deity? I, mean, <laughs> I, I want details, practical mm -hmm. details. Depends on depends on your circumstances, and and depends on your standard. So let's say you're at home, and you have a little altar. Uh, you can always have a small plate that's particularly for the deities, like little bowls, and you can make a plate and feed them. You can put a spoon on the plate. Usually, we don't really. <laughs> you could do that. Why not? But. Usually the food is offered uh, with mantras. So they, there are different mantras that you can chant. They, uh, it's an offering that also purifies the food vibrationally, so to say. But, but the most important thing, and that's what Krishna is interested really, or whoever you're offering your food to, is your loving, love and devotion. So it, it's like, there's this verse uh, in Sanskrit, and I cannot remember it now, right now. The last two words, Bhavagrahi <laughs> Janardana, the three, last three words. And the, the verse says that, in terms of pronunciation of Sanskrit, so the, the vipra, the brahmana, uh, I'm sorry, the, a foolish person would chant the mantra improperly. And a learned person, a brahmana, would chant the mantra properly. But God accepts both 
they both get the same benefit because they had the right disposition of their heart. So it's really more of a internal, again, relationship, connection. It's like, here, my Lord, you've kindly given me these ingredients and this food, and I try to prepare it to the best of my abilities, and please forgive my shortcomings, but here I am, I, I come and I offer this to you, kindly accept it. So that's the most important part. And then the externals, sometimes you're just traveling and you have to offer it in your mind, or um, you can have a little picture with you <laughs> when you travel. Um, but it's always, um, what, what really counts is the bhava, the, the loving, the love that you're doing it with. And it starts, you know, gathering all the ingredients, the best ingredients for your cooking. That's an expression of love. Then cooking it with loving intentions. And then offering it with love and honoring it with love. So it, it's really, that's the, the glue that makes a real offering. The physical, it's really up to you. You can have a silver plate. You can make it really nice and beautiful. It's up to you how, how physically you want to present it, the presentation. But definitely having a little special plate just for your deities. Nobody else eats from that. It's, it's, ni it's a nice personal touch. I remember um, back in 1969, most of you were still in your last lifetimes. <laughs> in 1969 in Paris, I was a student, and I met a devotee there, nice fellow, New Yorker, naturally, who was a former recording studio engineer, and he uh, gave Bhagavad Gita classes in French. He was one of my teacher, Prabhupada's first disciples in New York, and he had come to Paris to try to start some kind of a Krishna temple in Paris. There was no temple. There was no restaurant. You know, there's no... What, you never heard the word vegan, let alone vegetarian. <laughs> so we would go out. I, I, we, we worked together to earn a few, you know, francs at the American Center for Students and Artists, which was this hangout in the Latin Quarter for visiting artists <coughs> in the States. So we'd go out at the end of the day to a local cafe where we'd get our baguette and, you know, big tub of chocolate milk or whatever. And I know every time we would do this, he would be standing, we'd stand at the bar, right? We're in the bar in a Paris cafe. And uh, Wally, as he was known then, would just do this. He'd be staring at the plate. And Wally, what are you doing? And he said, I'm, I'm offering my food. <laughs> offering it to who? What are you doing? Because he'd be just staring at the plate for like minutes on end, you know, as I was getting embarrassed. And I think the point was that there was no facility for doing silver trays and creating an altar such as we have here and making a formal offering. But even a little bit of formality, wherever it may be, words from the heart, even a little bit of formality, transform a baguette into prasad. And that's really, it's as simple as that. It, it's, 
It's what you bring to that. And uh, I'll just never forget standing there at the bar watching, watching him looking at this long loaf of French bread and wondering, is he <laughs> trying to analyze its ingredients or what is he doing? And he was silently offering a prayer. <laughs> Once we were very young devotees and we were at some house somewhere and it has a cherry tree with ripe cherries in it. So some very wise devotee stood in front of the tree and chanted the mantras and he offered the whole tree. <laughs> it's a convenient way. And we're just picking and eating. Mm. <laughs> it wasn't so personal. <laughs> yeah, they are. They are different mantras. They're the mantras in the Gita. They are mantras like you can chant the Maha Mantra. You can chant. Um, usually in the Vaishnava tradition, first you always offer respect to your teacher. So you chant your Guru Mantra or just a simple. Om Ajnana Timiranda simple offering respect to your teacher and then there are actually at the end of the Gita in, in the it should be one of the appendices I think there are. has prayers for offering at least in the old editions they used to be is it? oh maybe they don't have them anymore you need to get the good version of that <laughs> Oh, sorry about that. So I can find them in Yeah, yeah. But you could always chant the Maha Mantra. Actually, if I'm not mistaken, Michael, didn't we have a, a one class on how to offer your no, food? It's not we do. Okay, so, so um, those of you who are interested, uh, next week I'll bring the handouts from that class that we had. It was going back, I think, two or three months. We had um, a class on how to do an arti, how to offer food in a simple way, and there was a sheet of paper that I believe we handed out with some... Three months, a year ago. Was it that long ago? Yeah. Well, you see, we get here and Used. time becomes eternal. I, guess. I tell you, it's magical. At the end of my class, I always sing the mantras, and I invite people to gather around, and we just cook, cook the meal, and we gather around, and I tell them... It's just a blessing, and we also ask God to bless everybody who contributed to this food, to this meal today, and it's just expressing our gratitude to all these countless beings who bring the food to our table. And I sing the mantras, and people actually, and I invite them to say their own prayer and blessing. And at the end, it's something magical happens. I, I cannot explain it. It's totally beyond me. But at the end, a lot of people come and tell me, this is my favorite part of the class. <laughs> or or the, it just takes a minute to do it. Oh, it always tastes better. And then something magic, magical happens to the food. And it's really one of those things that you cannot explain. But they always tell me, I can feel the love in your food. And I'm like, oh, well. <laughs> so. Any other questions that anyone would like to ask? Sure. Um, I was listening to this spoken word thing by Will Tuttle earlier today about how um, how uh, people's relationship with food is something that you learn from your parents when you were young. And uh, many animals do this. They learn from their parents how to eat. And um, you were saying that your 
was a struggle for sure. Also because vegetarian diet, what to speak of vegan, forget vegan diet in Bulgaria, it's very uncommon. But Asia um, was very uncommon. It was very strange to be a vegetarian. It was really, it still is. It's a lot more popular nowadays, but it still is. So initially I was very fanatical about it. And I would like, I wouldn't touch the pots where meat was cooked. And I was like, I'm not going into your kitchen. <laughs> it actually affected my relationship with my parents because they don't know, it's just ignorance, you know, but they love me. <laughs> so, and I love them, of course. So initially, it actually created more distance. And at some point, I realized, well, I cannot be so fanatical. I'm not here to convert them. It's really their free will if they want to be vegetarian. So the way I started doing uh, really helping them is, not helping them, but just being myself and staying true to my commitment to being a vegetarian, was I started bringing fruits, offered fruits like prasadam fruits, and, and eat them. And I would go sometimes to their house and I would offer everything possible <laughs> so that they could have something that's familiar to them. It's not some strange yellow rice with different things they've never tasted before and they were like I, I don't know I don't, I don't want this you know I would cook things that are very familiar for them and they would really enjoy it and uh, at some point my mom I mean, she was very concerned because of my health and all these things yeah. and she realized that I, I was actually getting healthier and I was getting a better person too with my spiritual practice. I actually started honoring her, respecting her a lot more than when I was a teenager. <laughs> so, so, and I told her, this is my teachers, they teach me how to offer respect to the parents. <laughs> and, um, and they, at some point I started cooking at home regularly and my mom actually, now she loves my, she can't wait for me to go home. I try to go to Bulgaria once a year. They can't wait for me to actually go home and cook for them. And she always tells me, if I can eat like this every day, I would be a vegetarian, no problem. But it's just so deeply ingrained in them. And somehow, like, she, she doesn't have the support to be a vegetarian of her own, you know. She doesn't know how to do it. And she lived her whole life like that. So instead of trying to convert her and do something very unnatural for her, I try to give her as much as possible of the good vegetarian pure food and Prasadam as much as possible, and she gains eternal benefit from that. So that's that's my approach, and it, it actually we have a very good relationship now, and it, she totally appreciates my spiritual path and everything else I do. That can be a very very tricky uh, line to walk, because you know what you feel inside yourself, and you don't want to compromise that, and at the same time it may intimidate and scare people who love you and, and you know, all of a sudden you're a different person, you know? It's been a lot of surprising. Like, uh, my father, who's pretty intense with most of his ideas, has been relatively open. And my brother-in-law, who doesn't eat beef because he thinks it's wrong, but eats chicken, is like really affected by my diet, which is, it's been really surprising. Yeah. It takes time. It takes time. I was up at a yoga studio a few weeks ago in uh, Hudson, New York, at a teacher training. And uh, 
a question came up about how do you deal with antithetical, uh, ant is that the word, antithetical relationships? That's not the word. What is that? Where there's antipathy, oh. where, you know, where there's friction, differences of opinion. And uh, we talked about strategies, you know, different kind of ways of negotiating those, navigating those waters. And then someone, a, a woman who was there with her 21-year-old daughter, said something that no one had ever said to me before, and it really took me by surprise. She said, well, what if you're in a, an abusive relationship? And I said, well, get out. I mean, don't, you don't stay in an abusive relationship thinking this is God's will, this is my karma, this is, that staying in an abusive relationship is not spiritual, it's stupid. Get out. And then, this is the part that I'd never heard before. She said, what if the abusive relationship is coming from your own daughter? And I looked. She said, no, that's my older daughter. So she has a younger daughter who is still dependent. She's not, she hasn't attained her majority. She's living at home. And she's abusive, verbally abusive. Well, at a certain point, we have to recognize our limitations and follow Divya's advice, which is you, you walk your line. You be an example. And not expect. You can't levy expectations on other people. I don't know if we have the right to do that. And this is someone who's been on that other side of the track, you know, with the books and the, you know, you know the whole thing. Um, I'm not sure that it's our prerogative to change people. I think we can ask, answer questions. We can be an example. Um, but to aggressively try to bring someone else to a point of view, uh, I think is, is um, crossing, crossing a certain line. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, it's not so much uh, that I want them to do something. It's just that I feel like it like, really hurts them in a way you know, like both my parents grew up in situations where they didn't have a lot of food. And so it's really uh, important. Like, it's like one of the ways that they love me. <laughs> sure. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And so I think that that's been, yeah. that's been a little, you know, I think there's a difference between extending yourself to accommodate someone else. And, and breaking your own principles. Yeah. That, that may be the difference. Because yeah. I can totally understand Divya's point about accepting them and the life that they have for themselves. But I, I don't think we, we need to compromise our own principles in order to achieve that, that harmony.
was a slow process. It was, mm -hmm. took years to get to that place. It was very compassionate and very non-confrontational about it. Um, the, uh, you're reminding me of an experience that I had teaching over at Integral Yoga some years ago. And it was a Gita series. And at some point, the issue of food and prasadam and vegetarianism came up. And I don't remember what it was that I said. It must have been something like, you know, how critical or how central it is to an understanding of spiritual life that, you know, diet is integral and, you know, a non meat diet is. And a hand shot up at the back of the room, and it was someone who'd been coming for weeks. And I said, yes. She said, you know, I, I just have to say this, and it's very hard for me to say it. I am so sick and tired of feeling like a second-class citizen here. She said, I, I love yoga. I come to integral yoga all the time. I love this Gita series. I've come to every class. And I tried to be a vegetarian. And I was getting deathly sick. Now, I wasn't going to say there's a right way to do it. You know, I was just listening. She said, and my doctor said to me, I, I must not do this. That, you know, that I have to have that protein. And, and uh, so, and I appreciate and respect and honor, you know, vegetarianism and nonviolence. But I just have to say, I really feel horrible coming here and thinking that somehow I'm the outsider to this group because I can't be a vegetarian. I, I have to say that ever since then, I've been very, very careful about you know, pushing my ideas. I, I think we, we need to take a position on things. You know, I, I happen to think there's a right way and a wrong way to address life and diet. But I, I no longer think for myself that I can just dictate. And that, that instance was very important because this was someone who wanted spiritual life. You know, she was there for that. Well, uh, I had a, a friend who was very wealthy and they created an organization to help children who were dying of uh, terminal illnesses. And what their organization would do is they would grant the wish of this dying child. Like whatever the child wanted, like I want to go to Disney World. They would make that happen and they would pay all the expenses. And, I mean, this was a beautiful idea. And they had granted the wishes of many children and made children very happy in this kind of way. One child asked, I want to kill a bear. That was their dying wish. So the organization that was a wrench that was a wrench was thrown into their decision committee. You know, most people who aren't vegetarian think of 
vegetarianism or veganism or meat eating as just a preference, a dietary, an appetite preference, like do you like chocolate or vanilla? It's as kind of benign as that. And they're unaware of the more serious implications of eating meat. And of course, I agree with everything that's been said. It's not our part to convert people or to convince them that they should think otherwise. They, people will think what they're going to think. Um, but I think when we're in a position of granting a wish or uh, making a meal or then we should act from what we know is, is true. It doesn't mean we have to force someone else to agree with us, but I don't think we should ever compromise once we know the full story of... Yeah, I think once you know the full story, you, you, you can no longer compromise once you understand what's actually going on. It's, it's, it's a shocking revelation. But some people might say, well, when I'm with my grandmother, then I do eat food that she made me. Because I don't want to hurt her feelings. Mm. Well, we wish And you know, I want, to, I want the little boy to be able to shoot a bear because he's dying. And yeah. What are you I know. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like, I don't think. Can I ask what the organization did? Yeah. I think that there are um, there are limits, there is now one one stuffed teddy, teddy bear with a lot of bullet holes in it. Well, no, I mean, I'm asking genuinely. I mean, there's hunting lodges. People go and learn to hunt. I mean, I have a friend that owns one, so I'm like. larger, the contextual issue here, I think, is one of the, the mindset of approaching 
our spiritual life with integrity and, and what constitutes um, a real wholehearted commitment to spiritual life. And when does that wholehearted commitment cross a line over into a kind of fanaticism? Which can be, you know, a strong asserting of your beliefs, but perhaps a real turnoff for everybody around you. And if part of the reason for becoming a spiritual person is that you have compassion for others, then the last thing you want to do is turn them away. So some sensibility, some sensitivity to how other people are processing something is in order. I know in my... <laughs> My, my teacher was a perfect example of that. I mean, he would bend over backwards. He would never compromise his own principles, never. He'd bend over backwards. Yamuna, when she first met Prabhupada here in New York back in 66, was a smoker. You know, and, and uh, she said, can I smoke a cigarette? She said, well, he said, well if you're going to do that, just, just do it outside the kitchen. You know? <laughs> I mean, he didn't condemn her. For, you know, you know, it was just gradually, gradually, gradually. His spiritual master was even more radical in this way. Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati would have meat served to European dignitaries coming to visit his Gaudiamat institution. And he told his disciples that when you go to London, if you need to serve them meat in order for them to come to our gathering, serve them meat. Now, that you have to bear in mind what the circumstances are here. We're talking 18, you know, whatever, 1910 or something like that. Very different world. But the point was that this, the great souls will bend over backwards to encourage someone to come around and eventually to be in a place where they might be able to actually consider changing the habits of their lives. So. And in my experience is even if they don't change the habits, they respect right. where you stand in your practice. Like now, I, every time I go home to Bulgaria, when I go home, the fridge has no meat, fish, or rice. <laughs> and because they know, and I cook for all of them the whole time, and they love it. But, but I come, and the fridge is empty. <laughs> and, and out of respect, not, not because, you know, it's it just out of respect. So when you stand on the ground and at the same time respect the, the free will of others, you know, you can educate people, but you cannot force them to change. So then they respect you for that even if they don't follow you. So. Last question, Alexander. I was just going to share um, one of the volumes that, um, from Sharon's Spoken Word series, where she says, when you're firmly established in your practice, in your yoga practice or yoga practice, and others will accept you. And it's so, 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 so true. Um, when, I, when I first became vegan, it wasn't so easy, and was, that wasn't so visible to me. But then over the years, cultivating that, cultivating it, um, other people to see changes in you and they become curious mm -hmm. and kind of want to like, get on that way. And I was visiting my dad for his 80th birthday in LA. He's suffering from cancer, so he's very open at the prospect of change now that he may be nearing about that. So he's wearing his mom beans and I them. And um, we went to a vegan restaurant and they didn't know it was vegan. My sister did, but my dad didn't know. It was Cafe Gratitude. And when we got there, he was ordering food and really, really 
enjoyed it. My other sister too, who had never really taken a, you know, an interest to it. Even his cake, his key lime pie cake was <laughs> just goes to show you what a good recipe can do. <laughs> and those of you who would like some good recipes, let me encourage you to attend some of Divya's classes at the Bhakti Center because she is an expert in her field. Would you please join me in thanking her for having me? So now, Michael, you're going to do our Um. How about right after the yourself underground? Have a beautiful story. You know, there's nothing like the way you went. You still stood by your own ground. You went on the ground, practiced yoga. That's a beautiful story you gave us. Thank you. You know, you listen to your spirit inside. How firm you stood all through this. And I don't get to know. This is how life works. So she went through with you. You're a gift of love. Thank you. Thank you, Rodney. Thank you, So please join us. We'll um, have a small arty ceremony and then some vegan strawberries at the end. And I got vegan chocolate chip cookies. Oh, and vegan chocolate. Are you sure?